Father, thank you for the truths that we've already proclaimed this morning in our singing, that our future is sure, the price has been been paid, sin has been defeated, we've been released from our chains, yet not by our power, Lord, but through Christ in us. And so now we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear your word this morning, help us to understand it, help us to believe it, help us to respond rightly to it. And above all, help us to see Jesus as more glorious and majestic than ever before. For his glory and for our good. Amen. In a recent article from NBC News titled Disrupting Death, the author tells us that entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are attempting to disrupt what has been long seen as one of the only sure things in life, that being death. The article goes on to explain that computer scientists and artificial intelligence specialists are developing programs now that would theoretically allow people to avoid death by digitizing the mind. Ray Kurzweil, director of engineering at Google, predicts that by 2030, we will be able to connect our brain to the cloud in order to replicate ourselves for the future. Yeah. uh, Other neuroscientists and computer uh, specialists are skeptical of this brain uploading and have called the ethics uh, of this research into question, especially after one of the lead scientists admitted that his proposed brain backup plan was, quote, 100% fatal. (laughs) In other words, in order to keep the brain fresh uh, to be preserved for later, the the client must be euthanized. Something's something's missing in the logic there, I feel. Again, this this story should not surprise us, right? Ever since the fall from the Garden uh, Garden of Eden, humanity has struggled uh, to escape death without success. The fountain of youth has not been found. Indiana Jones dropped the Holy Grail down the crack. Uh, Harry Potter broke the Elder Wand. Like all the things that, you know, we were hoping for didn't didn't work out. But even with, more seriously, even with the wonderful advancements of of medical science that are helping us stay alive even longer, it still only delays the inevitable reality that we are all slaves to death. A reality that most humans want to avoid at all costs and spend most of their lives trying to avoid its implications. Yet as Christians, we ought not to avoid the truth about death. For as Matt McCullough says in his book, Remember Death, if we avoid the truth about death, we avoid the truth about Jesus. If we hide our face from the enemy of death, we will fail to see the glory of the king who conquered the grave. So we look at our passage today, we'll be confronted with the glory and truth of Jesus and we'll see that he alone can release us from this bondage of death because he alone is the great I am. As we consider the words of Jesus, we'll be forced to decide along with the crowds whether we believe in Jesus does truly have the power over death or he needs to die himself. We'll encounter the glory of Jesus in this dramatic passage in two parts. The first part I'll go through is in verses 48 through 53. We'll see Jesus make a glorious promise. And then in 54 to 59, we'll see Jesus ground his promise in a majestic claim. And each of these sections, we'll be focusing primarily on Jesus' statements that begin with, truly, truly, I say to you. So first, a glorious promise. 
When we look at the text here in the passage, you'll notice that we are entering into a longer conversation between Jesus and a group of Jews in the temple. The conversation has escalated quickly and become contentious. What's fascinating about this conversation that Jesus is having with his counterparts is that these counterparts, they had just recently claimed to believe in Jesus. If you look at John 8, verse 30. But by the end of our passage today, they will be picking up stones to throw at him. So what in the world did Jesus say between John 8.30 and John 8.59 that would change their minds about him? Well, as we heard last week, Jesus told them, you are not free, but you are spiritual slaves to sin. While their, their ancestry DNA results came back and they said, says that they're part of Abraham's bloodline, Jesus tells them that their works show that their spiritual bloodline is of the devil. That their father is the devil. Uh, it's interesting throughout the, the gospel, Jesus has this very uncanny ability to draw in a large crowd with his miracles and his teaching and then turn the same crowd against him in a matter of moments. Uh, we saw this in John 6 when he gathered a whole bunch of people for um, the feeding of the 5,000. And then within a day, that crowd was just 12, his 12 buddies, his 12 disciples. So why in the world does Jesus do this? You know, it doesn't seem like a great you know, uh, missionary, uh, mission strategy at all. Well, Jesus does this throughout the Gospels to expose half-hearted believers. He's making them choose between their masters. He makes the rich young ruler choose between his possessions and Jesus, the greatest treasure. He makes the Jews choose between their traditions and the one who fulfills them. And time and time again, people choose their own idols over Jesus because they are slaves to them and are in need of Jesus to set them free. As you might expect... This did not sit well with the crowd. Look at how they respond in verse 48. The Jews answer him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they're so angry at Jesus that they, they reach down for the worst insult they can, they can muster up. You know, they're, they're so taken aback by, by Jesus' rebuke of them that they have now gone into personal attack and, and name-calling uh, their response kind of feels like a kid on a playground, you know, who's just been called a name and he hasn't, he doesn't have a comeback to come with. So, you know, your father's the devil. Well, well, well your father's the devil. That's what, that's what it feels like. They're just name calling Jesus at this point. And their only explanation for Jesus, a Jew, making the comments he does is that he must be a Samaritan, which is a, they thought is a half-breed heretic of that day, and that he's possessed by a demon, the response really would be funny if it wasn't so damning. They could not be more wrong about Jesus. Their moral discernment is so backward that they tell the Son of God that he is a demon and that he doesn't know his Father. Yet even in our day, we don't have to go very far to see this kind of moral judgment. It ought to break our hearts to, to look at the world and even many who maybe can claim to be followers of Jesus boldly calling good things evil and evil things good. But before we shake our head at the world, we ought to thank God for his grace, for uh, apart from the Spirit opening our eyes to see the glory of Jesus, we too had the same backward moral judgment. And in response to their insults, Jesus follows uh, Proverbs 26.4, and does not answer the fool according to his folly, but he calmly refutes their claims and tells them that he is simply honoring his father, and his father is the judge. 
Jesus has no need to placate the crowds, to, but to simply fulfill his ministry, for he knows that his Father is seeking his glory. And then we come to this glorious promise that he gives to his accusers in verse 51. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus responds to the racial slurs, to the insults, with an invitation to his enemies. And to us today, that if anyone would keep his word, they would be set free from the chains of death. There's a story I just read recently about a pastor named Donald Barnhouse. Uh, at this time in his life, his wife had just died of cancer, and he was left to raise his two young daughters alone. And he was driving them to the funeral. He realized that he needed to help to find a way to put their mother's death in perspective. And as they pulled up to a stoplight on a very beautiful sunny day, a big truck rolled up next to them blocking the sun and casting a very large shadow over their car. Barnhouse turned to his daughters and said, Girls, would you rather be hit by that truck or the shadow? As one of his girls responded, Daddy, that's a silly question. I'd much rather be hit by the shadow than the truck. He went on and tried to explain that though their mother had died, it was as if she had been hit by a shadow. Jesus had stepped in the truck's path and absorbed death's blow so that their mother wouldn't have to. He then went on to quote for his girls, Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Jesus here is promising that whoever believes in him, whoever abides, who hears, who keeps his words, will not die, but will only be hit by death's shadow. Yes, our bodies will lie dead for a time, but we will not die. Our bodies may look as if they have died, but they lie about the truth of our eternal life. We will be more alive than ever before. This glorious promise that Jesus makes here is not the first time he's uh, given this promise. To, he's not doing this just to win over the crowd. This is something that is central to his ministry. You see this at least three times in John's Gospel. John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. John 11, 25 to 26, we'll get there in a few weeks. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Though we die, yet shall we live. Another author writes, death for the Christian is only an introduction to the nearer presence of God. Those who have believed in Jesus have been given spiritual life that physical death cannot extinguish. Since we are united to Christ in faith, his death becomes our death, his resurrection becomes our resurrection, so that nothing in all the earth can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not even our death. I'm reminded of Apostle Paul's words, this is for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is why Christians sing at funerals. Though the pain is great and though our tears are many, we grieve and sing with hope 
because Jesus got out of the grave. And those who have placed their faith in Jesus can face death without fear because they know the next face they will see after they pass on will be their Savior, Jesus Christ. The Savior who has promised them that those who die in the Lord will never see death. Therefore, we can say today, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Therefore, we must not neglect such a great salvation. Being liberated from the fear of death ought to change the way we live. People ought to be perplexed how Christians face suffering, for apart from Christ, we, had every, we have every reason to be just as overwhelmed with fear. Our hearts ought to be encouraged when we hear about our brothers and sisters overseas in China facing persecution and imprisonment, and they're doing it with joy. I'm encouraged even in our congregation, we have people who have faced death over the last year, and they have done it with steadfast faith and joy. And it ought to encourage us, and it is a powerful witness to us of the resurrecting power of Jesus in their lives, and we ought to follow their way. And my guess is, uh, in an age now when evangelism is more and more seen as hateful, that one of our best opportunities to witness to the power of Jesus is how we will suffer and face death. That when we suffer and face death with joy and with clinging to Jesus, that will be strange to the world who has no answer for death. If you're not a Christian here today, I, I wonder when's the last time you thought about this idea of death and how you will face it? Have you ever taken the time to think about the problem of death and what happens after you die? When's the last time you were at a funeral? What were some of the questions that came up and have they been answered? When considering the questions surrounding death, the world will offer you an array of fanciful speculations. They will offer a few depressing options for you to choose from. But Jesus here offers you a living and a steadfast hope. And this hope that Jesus offers beyond the grave is free. Scripture tells us, right, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There are no hoops to jump through. There are no good deeds that you need to perform in order to earn this gift. Jesus holds the keys to unlocking death's chains, and he offers it to you today. One of the most amazing parts of the promise here that Jesus makes is that he's extending this invitation to escape death to anyone who would believe, to the crowd who has just insulted him, to the woman caught in adultery, to the thief on the cross. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've turned your back on Jesus, the offer still stands. Reminder of the hymn, it says, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And yet, the crowd who hears this glorious promise completely miss its glory. But instead, what they do, they double down on their accusation. They take Jesus' promise as giving them further evidence that he's doing the devil's work. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? 
Who do you make yourself out to be? You can feel the contempt in their words, right, as they mock Jesus. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Are you greater than Abraham? How can you promise that we won't die if the greatest among us have died? If you ever play pickup basketball, I'm, I'm thinking that Jesus uh, is, these, these people are thinking of Jesus as the guy who kind of comes off the bench, he, he makes one shot, and then for the rest of the time he plays basketball, he, he, anytime he gets to the ball, he just shoots it. He's just shooting it up. He thinks he's, and everyone's like, what do you think you are? I mean, you think you're Reggie Miller? You think you're Michael Jordan here? What are you, what are you doing? Stay in your lane, Jesus. You, you, you've done some cool miracles. Like, let's not get carried away here, Jesus. You think you're greater than Abraham? You're no, you're no Abraham. Their response here is, is so thick with irony. It, it's first ironic, right, because they clearly expect a negative answer to their question, while John's readers know that Jesus, uh, that the Jews here are proclaiming more truth about Jesus than they, than they realize. And second, I think it's even more fascinating, is that their response to Jesus' invitation for eternal life mirrors the response of the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, who after Jesus offers her living water, she asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? So these pious temple goers show that their moral discernment concerning Jesus is the same as the adulterous Samaritan woman that they're now using even to insult Jesus. They may look more put together on the outside, but inside their hearts are just as far from God. And so they ask Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? If you're going to claim power over death, if you're going to claim that you're greater than our ancestors, who do you really think you are? Their thrust of their question is pushing Jesus to either hedge on his claims, to kind of make a caveat, no, I didn't really mean that, or he's going to double down on his glory. And that takes us to our second section, where Jesus will make a majestic claim and will force the crowd and will force us today to decide whether we will throw stones or believe. Majestic claim. And we'll unpack this majestic claim uh, of identity in two parts. The first part in 54 through 57, we'll see Jesus claim that he is Abraham's joy. And second, in 58 and 59, we'll identify, Jesus will identify himself as Abraham's God. But first, let's look at verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In the section here, Jesus first makes clear again that what he is about to claim is not something coming from just himself alone, but from the father who he has shared in glory with for all eternity. Yet Jesus knows they will not understand his words because they do not know God and therefore they will not know him. And then Jesus gets back to the subject of Abraham and claims, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. So what is Jesus saying here? I think Jesus is claiming not only that they don't know God, his audience, but they don't even don't know Abraham because they don't even know what made him glad. My wife, Jessica, and I are coming up on our five-year anniversary, and if you were to ask me what makes my wife glad, I could immediately list off a number of things that I know make her very, very happy, like a, a clean house, 
fresh flowers, Trader Joe's chocolates, neck massages, bug-free areas or zones. And because I, I love her and because I know my wife, I can anticipate what she loves. Jesus here is indicting these Jews who have talked extensively of how connected to Abraham they are, and yet they don't even realize that he, Abraham's joy, is standing right in front of them. They failed to recognize the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Abraham was right there. Now again, we're not exactly sure maybe what the specific event that Abraham rejoiced to see the coming of Jesus uh, it may just be a general understanding of the coming Messiah. Some commentators speculate that maybe this occurred when the promised son Isaac was born in their old age, or when God provided a ram uh, as a substitute when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And so maybe he saw there that Jesus would be the, our substitute. But no matter what time it was, the key point here that Jesus is making is that the joy of Abraham was joy in Jesus. The joy of Abraham was joy in Jesus. Abraham rejoiced and longed to see the day of Jesus, and yet these people looking at Abraham's joy mock him instead of rejoicing in him. They look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you're, you're crazy. You're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham, who died 2,000 years ago. They continue to show their hardness of heart as they even fail to quote Jesus accurately, right? Jesus speaks of Abraham seeing his day, they speak of Jesus seeing Abraham. They say they know Abraham, but they miss his joy. Which brings us to the second part of Jesus' majestic claim. A claim that they will hear loud and clear. A claim that proves that he can follow through on his promise to defeat death. A claim that will put him on the fast track to the cross. A claim not only to be Abraham's joy, but Abraham's God. Look at verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Whatever misunderstandings the Jews had about Jesus' words leading up to this statement, we see clearly now they understood who Jesus himself claimed to be. Jesus does not mince his words here. He declares emphatically that he is the great I am, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end, the one whom exists eternally, the one who bears the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Word made flesh. If Jesus just simply wanted to claim that he existed before Abraham, which would be quite a shocking claim in itself, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. But instead, Jesus gives himself a name that has become, has become very familiar maybe to us in Christian circles and was clearly familiar to the Jews of that day. Before Abraham was, I am. We hear this name of God most famously in Exodus 3.14 when Moses asks God before he goes back to Egypt, whom shall I tell the people who sent me? And Yahweh replies, tell them I am who I am has sent you. Jesus takes the sacred name of God of Israel and applies it to himself. And we know by the reaction the Jews understand what Jesus is saying. They immediately pick up stones to throw at Jesus because the punishment for blasphemy to claim to be God, according to Leviticus 20.16, was to be stoned to death. Now, the law does not call for mob violence like we see here. 
but rather an orderly judicial proceeding. But we cannot deny that they understood what Jesus was claiming. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the one through whom and to whom things, all things were created. Jesus did a lot of things throughout his ministry that angered a lot of people or that angered the religious elites. Right? He, they hated him for healing on the Sabbath. They hated him because he socialized with sinners. They were appalled that he would surround himself with Gentiles. Yet it is for blasphemy that they seek to kill him. And we see this clearly in our text and also in John 10, 33, when they say, it is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. The implications of Jesus' claim here cannot be understated. Jesus either is who he says he is, or he's the greatest con man who ever lived. Either he has the power to defeat death and promise us eternal life, or he got what was coming to him. As uh, C.S. Lewis most famously uh, argued in Mere Christianity, that you cannot be neutral on Jesus. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let, let us not come with a patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Yet in our world today, we rarely see people outright say that Jesus is crazy or the devil, right? Uh, rather, our world has sanitized Jesus so that his claims of authority and divinity are not taken seriously, but they are silenced or dismissed. I encounter this sanitized Jesus uh, when I go to my barber to get what's left of my hair cut. Uh, uh, my, my barber is, is a Muslim. He's from Algeria. And when he found out I was a, a Christian, uh, he quickly affirmed that he, he liked Jesus and that yeah, he believed uh, in Jesus, that he was a, that he was a prophet. But when I, when I told him uh, that, actually, I, I believe Jesus was more than a prophet. I believe that he was God incarnate and that he died and he rose again for, for our sins. He, he quickly stopped me and made sure that he, I knew that that is not what he believed about Jesus. We saw this even on our vision trip to Dubai. We, we got a tour of a, of a mosque. And the lady who was uh, kind of giving us this, this tour uh, was pretty much hedging trying to make everybody feel comfortable that, that Jesus was okay. He's okay to be in here. He's all right with, with what we believe here too. Yet when we talk to Muslims, we talk to other people, other religions, and we reveal the claims and the deity and the absolute authority that Jesus has, the conversation takes a different tone. And for so many in our culture in the West, Jesus is repackaged in a way that his words incite no reaction and have very little effect on the hearer. As little effect uh, meaningless as when a Black Friday shopper is running through the mall and overhears Oh Holy Night as they run to purchase their latest iPhone. Right? It's fascinating. You hear we're okay with the songs about Jesus at Christmas time over the loudspeaker, but they have little effect on our heart. The world's reaction to Jesus shows they do not know the real Jesus. If Jesus were to say the same things he said in the first century and the 21st century, I believe that he would receive much of the same reaction we see here in our text. 
I mean, could you imagine if you, uh, maybe at a presidential uh, inauguration, you know, the newly elected president stands up and is about to address the nation, and he says this, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, for I am the one who created the world, and if you obey my word, you will never die. I don't... I don't think we would we'd clap after that. I think we would run for the hills, uh, find our passports and leave. That would be a scary moment, right? The, the Jesus of the Bible, it, it, again, is not someone that you can neatly fit in your pocket for you to take out when he's convenient. He is the God of the universe. He's the God who made you, who loves you, who knows what's best for you. He died for you. But he also calls you to deny yourself and take up your cross and to follow him. He demands that you give your life for him. And we must remember the people who want to kill Jesus in our text here are church people, right? They're the ones that knew their Bibles, they have good morals, and yet they have no room for Jesus. They reject his word, declare him insane, and they pick up stones to throw at him. We see Jesus in our text, he, he escapes their attempt to kill him, whether it be supernaturally or stealthily, we're, we're not sure, but he managed to escape and, and leave the temple. And I think there's some symbolism here. Uh, his exiting of the temple is reminiscent of a time in Israel history, in 1 Samuel 2, when the Ark of God, they, they decided to use the Ark of God kind of as a, a token, which is where God's glory sat, and they tried to use it as a token into battle, and the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. And so this was a judgment upon the Israelites that the glory had left the temple. The glory had left the people. And here Jesus, the glory of God incarnate, has left the temple bringing judgment upon their attempt to kill the word of life. St. Augustine uh, once said this in commentary on this passage. He says, Jesus may flee from stones, but woe to those from whose hearts of stone God himself flees. And so now, church, having been confronted with the truth claims of Jesus, we must decide where we stand. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then we can believe in him, that when he promises us that those who trust in him will not see death, then we can have confidence in that. If he's not who he claims to be, then we must not spend another second in this room singing his praises. But in fact, right, church, we believe, and we are gathered here this morning because we do believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We believe that he is greater than Abraham. We believe that he was Abraham's joy and that he is the great I am. We believe he got out of the grave never to die again, and we believe that he is worth laying down our lives for him. We believe he is better than anything else this world offers. Just recently, uh, the Castle Men's Bible Study wrapped up. We were studying Hebrews, a good 30-week time in Hebrews, a great, great study. And in that book, the author pleads uh, with Jewish believers to not go back to their old ways, not to go back to their own traditions because Jesus is better. The author tells us that Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's, be he's a better rest than the promised land. He's a better high priest. He's a better mediator. He's a better sacrifice. He's the better shepherd. 
He administers a better covenant. He ushers in a better kingdom. And to him alone belongs all glory forever and ever. Amen. You will never find a better savior, a better king, a better friend, or a better hope than Jesus. And because Jesus is the better fulfillment of all that was promised, we can trust that all of his promises are sure. So when the son says you're free, you are free indeed. You are free from the clutches of sin. You are free from the pursuit of empty pleasures and possessions. You are free to be bold and courageous with the gospel. Free to give of yourself to others. You're free to confess sin. Free to forgive because we are free from condemnation. You're freed from the fear of missing out. Free from the fear of man. And you are free from the fear of death. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. And church, I hope you believe that this, this freedom that we're talking about here, this is not a mirage. This is not some self-help mantra that we say to ourselves to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. No, because we believe this because this freedom in Christ did not come cheap. It cost Jesus his life. It took the Son of God, eternally existed, to leave his throne above, to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve to die, he took on all our sin, all our shame, so that for us, death would be just a shadow. Jonathan read a passage earlier from Hebrews 2 that I want to bring back up and I want us to close with and think about. I really feel like it sums up what we're talking about very well. You can follow along on the screen behind me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that being Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So church, this morning we have encountered the claims of Jesus. We have seen his promises. So will you now join the crowd and throw stones, or will you bow your knee and believe? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we're so thankful for this word this morning. We ask that you would help us to believe all that you've revealed to us in your Son, Jesus. For those here this morning that are struggling to believe and don't know what will happen to them after death, would you help them to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus who loves them, who died for them, so that they might not see death, but have everlasting life. For those here who do believe Jesus has conquered death and is the only one who is worthy of our worship, would you remind them this morning that Jesus is near, that he can help us as we struggle with doubt and temptation, that we are truly free indeed. And help us to live as free people who say no to sin and yes to righteousness who give of ourselves because we know that you gave of yourself for us. Lord, we long to see your face. 
But as we wait for you to come again, would you help us to suffer well so that your power and your glory would be displayed in us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray.